Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Faith and Family. We're doing a special series of broadcasts entitled Fatima, The Rest of the Story. And this is part two of that series. Just to bring you up to speed, May 13th, 2017 is the 100th anniversary of the first of the apparitions at Fatima, Portugal, to three young shepherd children. You know, it's interesting that Fatima may very well turn out to be the defining event of the 20th century and the key for understanding the 21st. Paul Harvey, the ABC radio commentator, had that classic line where he would say, and now for the rest of the story. In other words, there's an interesting twist the way he would put together his radio segments. And Paul Harvey reminds me of what Mother Angelica said about Fatima in May of 2001. She said, as for the secret of Fatima, well, I happen to be one of those individuals who thinks we didn't get the whole thing. And, <laughs> well, you know, I think Benedict XVI kind of agreed with Mother Angelica because he said in the presence of a half million people at his mass in May of 2010, May 13, 2010, quote, we would be mistaken to think that Fatima's prophetic mission is complete. In other words, there's an unfolding story here. And it, as I explained in the last broadcast, <laughs> the part of the story you're not hearing is simply that we're not hearing. As you probably heard me do several times, I've urged parents to listen to papal homilies at World Youth Day. You have a teenager, you listen to these papal homilies at World Youth Day, and you can hear the Holy Spirit speaking to the needs, the spiritual needs of youth in our modern world. Well, the same thing. Uh, if you want the rest of the story of Fatima, I'm not you don't need a 500-page book. You don't need to go in some cave and find some hidden secret. You simply need to listen to the papal homily. It is that simple. You see, it was at a mass that the third secret of Fatima was revealed and explained. Okay, It was at the conclusion of that mass, and that mass included a homily by St. John Paul II in which he referenced Revelation 12. And if you want the rest of the story, uh, granted, my, my take on this uh, might seem simple, but listen, simply listen to the homily and listen to the scripture which St. John Paul II pointed to, Revelation 12. That's the rest of the story. And it's the same rest of the story that on the 50th anniversary of that first apparition of Fatima, on May 13th by Pope uh, Paul VI, he referenced Revelation 12 as well. So let's tackle today the question, what exactly is Revelation 12 describing? And I'm going to give you a summary here. There are two things you need to be aware of that's going on in, in this chapter. First, there are three principal personages. Mary, her son, 
and St. Michael. Mary, Jesus, and St. Michael. And there's one principal event, okay? Uh, um, well, kind of two, but let, let, there's, the, there's the initial scene in Revelation 12 of a great sign in the heavens. And this could actually, I, I'm not beyond believing that this could actually result in some kind of celestial sign, just like we saw at the birth of Christ, there is a celestial sign. But in that sign, it, it referenced the defeat of Satan by the seed of the woman that was prophesied all the way back in Genesis 3.15. But we find that Satan had been defeated, kicked out of heaven, the accuser of God's people kicked out of heaven, and then we have the principal event that Revelation 12 is describing, and it's in three words, and here it is, the final confrontation. Revelation 12, the rest of the secret of Fatima, <laughs> staring us in the face. It's what John Paul II referred to when he was referring to Revelation 12, is the final confrontation. Now, what exactly would John Paul be thinking of about this great final confrontation, this great conflict, this fruit of the cosmic war that's been going on between Satan and his people and the woman, ultimately Mary and her seed with Jesus, this, this thing that's coming to a conclusion, what in the world would be in St. John Paul II's mind? Well, I think if you want a really good insight into what he was thinking, just back up a little bit to when Cardinal Carol Wayatola visited the United States in 1976, and he said this, We are now standing in the face of the greatest historical confrontation humanity has gone through. I don't think that the wide circles of the American society or wide circles of the Christian community realize this fully. We are now facing the final confrontation between the church and the anti-church of the gospel versus the anti-gospel. We must be prepared to undergo great trials in the not-too-distant future, trials that will require us to be ready to give up even our lives and a total gift of self to Christ and for Christ. Through your prayers and mine, it is possible to alleviate this tribulation, but it is no longer possible to avert it. How many times has the renewal of the church been brought about in blood? It will not be different this time. That was 1976, the final confrontation. And what he was talking about back in 76, what he was talking about in 2000 in referring to Revelation 12 is the final confrontation. The final confrontation in that cosmic war that's been here since the beginning of human history. And it's the conclusion, really, of that first prophecy in the Bible, Genesis 3.15, where God is going to put enmity between Satan and the woman, and the woman is ultimately fulfilled in Mary. That's why at the wedding of Cana, 
Jesus addresses Mary, his mother. He doesn't say mother, he says woman. And from the cross, he addresses Mary as woman. And that was John, by the way, twice in his gospel. And John does it again in the book of Revelation. The woman ultimately is Mary. And she's going to be involved in the crushing of the serpent's head by having a seed that will defeat Satan. And so you have these two characters in Genesis 3.15. You have David, who is the child or seed of the woman. And David in the middle of the Bible is like a preview of what Jesus will be doing on the cross. And, and of course, the classic Bible account is David and Goliath. But to me, it's almost unfortunate that children are exposed to this biblical account in a sanitized version, and we're kind of um, left with part of the story. And as adults, we kind of still have a, a childlike view of David and Goliath. A lot of times, children's literature tries to be nice and say, you know, like David was a scrawny little boy and, you know, but God really uses wimps and that's the moral of the story. Now, God can use some very strong men and David was young. He may not be been as tall as his brother, but when he came to Saul and his brothers, his inclination why he could defeat Satan is that he used to watch sheep. And if a lion or a bear would make off with one of his father's sheep, he would go after it and rescue the sheep right out of the mouth of the lion or the bear and smite it. Now, <laughs> to me, that's the man God uses, okay? He's a brave guy. And then in 1 Samuel 17, it says four times referencing David going for the head. And the reason is, this is a direct correlation to Genesis 3.15, because he is going to bruise your head, Satan, and Goliath represented Satan's overwhelming, terrifying power. Ooh, who can take care of him? And David goes, and he takes the stone, where does he put it? Right in his head. And then this is the part they leave out of the children's Bible stories, and as adults, we don't really hear the story much again. He took out Goliath's own sword and cut off his head. And then after the battle, he takes his head in hand, David, and walks into Jerusalem. Oh, crushing the serpent's head in Jerusalem. You see the preview here. And then David goes into the king, and he's still carrying Goliath's head, cutting off the head, cutting off the head, carrying the head. This is how you defeat the enemy. So that was the seed of the woman. But in this battle, just as we see in Revelation 12, and just as we see in Fatima, by the way, the way God has designed this battle to be fought and to be won is not like Rush Limbaugh with one hand tied behind your back. My good evangelical friends listening, and I know some of you are listening, you don't want to go into the battle we're talking about. You don't want to go into the battle in which we're living this day with Jesus only. Uh, the way God has designed this, it's Jesus and Mary. The woman and her seed are going to crush the serpent's head. So <laughs> we, we don't want to leave out anything that God has for us. 
And just like David was prefiguring the great head crushing of Satan in the Old Testament, there's a woman we read about in Judges 4, J.L. And the enemy of the people of God came running towards her tent, exhausted, and he says, you know, I'm thirsty, give me something to drink. She says, oh, come on, have something to drink, and why don't you take a nap, lie down here. So he was snoozing, and it says she took a tent peg. And by the way, back then, tent pegs weren't these little plastic things that you get on your North Face tents, okay? These were tent pegs. Think circus tent pegs, okay? She took a tent peg and took a hammer in her head, in her hand, went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple till it went down into the ground. And he was lying fast asleep, and so he died. And so the great general of the enemy of the people of God, Jael, put it right through the head and defeated him. And you know, in Catholic Bibles, and this is one where basically Protestants can miss out, but in Catholic Bibles, there's Judith, who is a godly, pious Jewish widow, and Jerusalem is surrounded by one of the mightiest armies on the planet, and everybody's being starved to death, and Judith puts off her mourning garments and puts on an attractive dress. She was a very beautiful woman. She goes out of the gates of Jerusalem, marches, walks right into the guards of the great General Holofernes and says, I would like to see your general. And these guards took one look at her and said, he would love to see you. So they take her to General Holofernes' tent, and he finds her so ravishingly beautiful and everything, he decides to uh, drink and have a big party and just it goes to show you that it's not a good idea to drink too much. Holofernes drank until he passed out. And guess what happened to his head? It was cut off by Judith. Now, these things don't find their way. Unfortunately, I mean, it almost should be adult books because this is a little bit more than uh, PG. Uh, but the point is, not to describe gore or anything else, but it's prefiguring a great head crushing that takes place at the cross with the seed of the woman crushing the serpent's head at Golgotha, the place of a, of a skull, and Mary at the side of the cross. And you find now this battle in Revelation chapter 12 reaching the culmination point because Satan, driven out of heaven as a result of the cross, is now on earth, and he's, he's putting poison, his poisonous venom, trying to flood the church with it. And now we find the third personage introduced to us in Revelation 12, and that is St. Michael, the archangel. Now, it's very interesting, and this is highly significant, that if Pope Paul VI, John Paul II. I wouldn't be surprised if Pope Francis, as he goes to Fatima on May 13th, will be quoting Revelation 12. And in this big final 
confrontation. We're talking about entering the final stage of human history. This is the biggie, the greatest historical confrontation humanity has gone through. And I couldn't agree with John Paul II more. I don't think the wide circles of American society or wide circles of the Christian community realize this fully. I think all of us, and I'll put myself into, included in that group, you know, need to wake up considerably for the situation that we find ourselves in. Any case, who is this St. Michael? Well, we read about St. Michael and his role in the final confrontation back in the book of the Bible, uh, bearing his name, Daniel chapter 12. We read about St. Michael. At that time, Michael, the great prince who is charge of your people, there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, and everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, that's the resurrection, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, there are two mistakes to be made when you read a prophetic passage like this, there is one group that says, oh, well, this is referring to something that happened in Daniel's day. This is something that happened long, long ago. And so there's a historical reference. This couldn't possibly be applied to the future. And then there's another group who will say, no, this is a prophecy of the future. It's not referring to anything in the past. And the mistake is, it's both. Most prophetic passages of Scripture have a local and immediate application, and that actually includes the book of Revelation. So 666 and whatnot could easily apply to the wickedness of the Roman emperor Nero. Does that mean there won't be any type of economic control by the Antichrist and political leaders at the end of time? No, not at all. It's both and, not either or. And unfortunately, prophecy students tend to get divorced into these separate camps, and they each lose a part of the truth. So in any case, one thing we need to be aware of when it says at that time, Michael the great prince shall arise, is that we need to just back up one half of an inch to Daniel chapter 11. And remember, when this book was written, there were no chapter divisions, maybe paragraphs at best, okay? And at the end of Daniel chapter 11, there's a reference to a what shall I say, loudmouth, boasting, wicked ruler. And in his historical reference, it's Antiochus Epiphanes, a great persecutor of the people of God. Now, this is where we get into this two-camp stuff. Uh, there are those who say, well, then Daniel 11 is referring to only Antiochus Epiphanes, because it speaks of even an abomination of desolation. He did profane the temple in the Old Testament and such. But others would say, yes, Antiochus Epiphanes is a preview 
of the Antichrist. Just like David slaying Goliath, yes, that historically happened, definitely historically happened, but it's also a preview of Jesus crushing the serpent's head, just like J.L. crushing Sisera's head with the tent peg. That was a preview, but it historically happened. So the history in Daniel 11, Antiochus Epiphanes really happened. He really persecuted the people of God. He really committed an abomination of desolation. But it's not limited to that. It's pointing forward to something pretty terrible in the future. And that's why Antiochus Epiphanes, prefiguring the Antichrist at the end of Daniel 11 immediately precedes the words, at that time, Michael shall arise and defend your people. Okay, now let's take that and go fast forward to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12 is the final confrontation. Revelation chapter 12 speaks of the final assault following the definitive defeat of Satan by Jesus on the cross with Mary, his mother, by his side, following that, it's the final assault of Satan. And God is going to counter that assault with St. Michael. Now, if we're reading Revelation 12, and I've referenced in this broadcast Revelation 12 several times, in the previous broadcast we looked at Revelation 12, Revelation 12, Revelation 12, but let me give you a big hint. Turn the page. What happens after Revelation 12? Well, it's Revelation 13, the rise of the Antichrist. Turn the chapter in Daniel, turn the page in Revelation, Antichrist. Things are reaching a peak, a final confrontation. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, section 675, says this, before Christ's second coming, the church must pass through a final trial that will shake the faith of many believers. I'm just going to put in my PS because they're not awake. The persecution that accompanies her pilgrimage on earth will unveil the mystery of iniquity. That's Revelation 13. In the form of a religious deception offering men an apparent solution to their problems at the price of apostasy from the truth. The supreme religious deception is that of the Antichrist by which man glorifies himself in the place of God. Catechism of the Catholic Church, section 675. Now, section 677. The church will enter the glory of the kingdom only through this final Passover. She will follow her Lord in his death, passion, and resurrection. The kingdom will be fulfilled not by a historic triumph of the church, but only by God's victory over the final unleashing of evil. So see, this is what's going on in the final confrontation. This is what's being described in very symbolic terminology in Revelation 12. It's the final unleashing of, of evil. Fatima is warning us. Revelation 13 is actually describing the unleashing of evil. And so, as Benedict the 16th said on his flight to Fatima on May 
2010. He said, beyond this great vision of the suffering, which in the first place refers to Pope John Paul II, okay, there's an indication also of realities involving the future of the church, which are gradually taking shape. Folks, <laughs> this is very serious. And Fatima, the reason so many popes have gone there, the reason John Paul II and Benedict goes on multiple trips, and that's why Pope Francis is going there, these are serious times. And he says it's a moment to indicate in the vision that there is mention of a need for a passion of the church. This is where the catechism says the church will basically follow Jesus in his passion. This is the stage you go through. This is the final confrontation. There's a total unleashing of evil. This is the last attempt. And I'm not saying this is going to happen in the next two weeks, two months, two years. I have no idea. But this is the final stage. Um, and it's been warned about. And God thought enough of what the situation is in this world to send the Blessed Mother to Earth at Fatima in 1917, and now we're at the 100th anniversary this May. So what do you do with this type of information? Well, as I mentioned earlier, if you're a Christian, I'm not saying if you're a Catholic, I'm saying if you're a Christian of any background, you start praying the rosary, because we are living in times that are way beyond human tools. Uh, we're in a spiritual warfare that's way beyond human ability. And the rosary is a powerful means to, to basically counter what's going on in the attack against the church, in the threat that's facing our world. We can't stop it, but we can mitigate it. And then along with the rosary, and I'm talking about all Christians praying the rosary, not just Catholics. You heard me. I'm recommending all Christians. And secondly, is really diligently and frequently praying the St. Michael the Archangel prayer. And there is a book entitled Manual for Spiritual Warfare by Paul Thigpen, and he actually has in there several prayers to St. Michael the Archangel. I couldn't uh, recommend them enough. You've been listening to the Fatima Special of Faith and Family. I'm your host, Steve Wood. Next week, we're going to answer the question, what do we do with this information? How do we apply it? What's the practical application of it? Till next time, may God bless you and your family. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at dads.org to order copies of Faith and Family broadcasts and to learn more about Catholic family life.